So, just to give you a quick heads up in terms of what we've been looking at over the last few weeks, we're doing a four-week series on transformation. So two weeks ago, I preached on the transformation of the heart and mind, looking at conversion. Is it any different from self-help? Is it any different from what um, you know, psychology offers, yoga offers, and various other things? What is the deal with conversion? And, and the way we looked at it was looking at the life of Peter. And we had a lot of fun, as you can imagine, looking at the life of Peter. But uh, the basic conclusion was this. Conversion is powerful. Conversion is real. Conversion is miraculous. Conversion is from God. But conversion is also messy. Okay? It's not just like you get converted and then everything changes all of a sudden. There are seasons of just immense mistakes and things going wrong and slip-ups and uh, big, sometimes huge sins, which can lead to paralysis. But in it all, there's that work of grace, that work of grace that God does in someone when they're born again, that even takes them through those things. And remember the highlight of the story was when Peter had denied Jesus three times and he, 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 he goes out fishing with the rest of the disciples, which is really his way of saying, I can't do this, I'm going back to my old life. And they're out fishing all night and they catch nothing. And then suddenly this mysterious figure on the shore says, let down your nets and the net's full again. And John, who's in the boat, says, it's the master. And Peter, before he can think what he does, does the most illogical thing in the world. He puts on his outer garment so he can throw himself in the lake, um, which is great. You think, what was he thinking? But what, he, what, what, he, what happened was this, was even through all, all that he'd done and his mistakes and his disappointment in himself and all of that, he loved Jesus. There was a love for Christ that was evidence of a work of grace in his life and heart that went deeper than anything else. And he swam to that shore and Jesus took him, made him breakfast, took him for a walk and then restored him. Asked him those three times, do you love me? Which is really what Jesus wants to know. And then restored him and then he goes on to bear loads of fruit. And then last week we looked at um, transformation of UK culture. So transformation of heart, of heart and mind, week one. UK culture last week. And we had a guest speaker, Andy Tilsey from Christchurch, did a great job. If you weren't here, please download it. It's an amazing message. And really the whole subject uh, and essence of it was you need to get God and get him good and proper if you're going to really make any difference in this culture. It's not a how-to, it's not about techniques, it's about seeing the face of God in that sense, knowing the glory of God that Moses asked for. And only as you know God in that sense and you walk with him intimately can you expect reasonably to make a dent in, um, in the culture around us. And so that was a beautiful, uh, I thought, uh, a corrective for any of us that might have been getting the wrong idea, thinking we can just do it, and an encouragement for those of us that were painfully aware as it was that we couldn't do it. But... Today, then, is transformation of the nations. We're going to go global today. Next week is transformation of the whole cosmos, including our bodies. Okay? So that's where we're going over these four weeks. So transformation of the nations. Let me just say, because some of you at this point might think, oh, no. I'm English. I like it in England. A message on the nations. Can't you just... This is irrelevant. If you don't get in your heart, the nations, you don't get the gospel. I will say that again. If in some way you do not carry the nations in your heart, you haven't understood the gospel. It's a lot bigger than you and Jesus. And it's a lot bigger than just something parochial that we're doing in our little patch. God is about a global work. 
And I'm going to take you through the story of the Bible. We're going to do a bit of storytelling today. I'm going to take you through the, really the story, the grand narrative of Scripture, so that you understand about God's heart for the nations. And then from there, we'll go on some practicalities for us. Okay, how's that sound? Yes. All right, I'm glad you like it, Dean. <laughs> We're going to start in Genesis. Let me say this, that the first few chapters of Genesis really contain, if you like, um, the DNA or the root of pretty much all the other doctrines that come out in the rest of the Bible. If you're not clear on Genesis, you'll be unclear on everything else. It's really, really important. If you approach Genesis from a kind of a mythical, wishy-washy point of view, you're going to go wrong on so many other things. You want to understand um, salvation. Genesis, Genesis 3. First gospel promise. You want to understand marriage and how it's supposed to work? Genesis 2. You want to understand male and female? Genesis 1. Genesis 2. You want to understand work? Genesis 2. Pretty much everything about life you can find in the first few chapters of Genesis and everything else grows out of that. So it's so important that we always start at creation. Um, so, Genesis 1. I'm hearing some flicking. We're on a bit of a flicking mission as a church, just so you know. What does that mean? That means that we're just, we're just making sure that when we read that scripture, there's some flicking sounds in terms of the pages. So people are actually getting used to finding things in their Bible. Because um, there's a, a concern in my heart about biblical illiteracy among Christians. And we've got, to, we've got to nail it one way or another. So this is part of helping. So you see some flicking. It's a beautiful sound. If I could hear some. <laughs> okay. Genesis 1, it's quite easy to find. It's the first book in the Bible and it's the first chapter. <laughs> so if you struggle finding that, we're in big trouble. Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. Remember, if you're not familiar with your Bible very much, the big numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verses, okay? So when we say Genesis 1, 27, it's the big one, the small 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them because he's good. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. From day one, this thing was global. It started off in the Middle East somewhere in a little place in the Garden of Eden, but God's plan was always that it would go global. So really what God is saying here is this, this temple that is Eden. That's really what it was, a temple. It was a garden, but really what was so beautiful about it, it was filled with the presence of God. God would come and walk with Adam in the cool of the day. It was the presence of God that made it what it was. And God's commission to Adam and Eve is take this and fill the earth with it. Remember that Adam and Eve are those who carry the presence of God. They're those they reflect the image of God as, they, they, as that's what they're created for. They're created to center around him, to be under him and delight in his glory and then as a result of being under him and delighting in his glory, then reflect the glory of God to creation, which they're over. So the design of man is to be under God, but over creation. And to fill the earth with the presence and the glory of God. That's the plan. It's not about getting religion on the earth. It's not about conquering and subduing in a military violence sense. It's about taking the fragrance of Christ. It's about taking the glory and the beauty of God as image bearers throughout the whole of creation. That's God's original plan. We know what they did. They kicked against God and tried to come over God and as a result have come under creation. Okay? So they're supposed to be under God and over creation. They kick against God and try and go over God and end up under creation, worshipping and serving created things. And that's where we find ourselves. 
So it's all gone, it's all gone ski with, it's all gone pear-shaped, it's all gone belly up, whichever phrase you prefer. Okay? That's what's happened. It's upside down. Adam and Eve listen to the serpent. Well, Eve listens to the serpent and takes the fruit, the forbidden fruit. Adam passively follows after her in it, and then God comes and he brings uh, the judgment, the curse on them, the fall. There's a gospel promise in it. You know, Christ, there is one that's coming, so there's hope in there. But really what we see is from that point on, we see sin entering the world. We see the first two children, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel, murder, death comes in. It's a horrible scene. Within a couple of chapters, we're told the whole earth is filled with violence. To the extent that it even says that God even regretted and felt sorry that he'd created man on the earth. It's that bad. So then comes the flood. Global flood. And then after the flood, you find that God recommissions Noah. It's almost the same language as we find in Genesis 1. If you go to Genesis 9, verses 1, we'll read and we'll read verses 7. So I want to just take you through the narrative today so that you understand and get the big story of the Bible. So Genesis 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah, there we go, again we see the same thing, and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There it is, the nations. Fill the whole earth. Verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. Team. So when people talk about population, over, over the earth being overpopulated, don't worry. God says team. All right, it's okay. So they're to scatter and fill the earth. But then look what they do in Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens... And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So God said, go. And they've said, no, that feels a bit insecure, really. Instead, let's gather together and create a name for ourselves. Let's gather together and really do our own thing. Let's create unity, but outside of God, outside of his commission, outside of what he's called us to. Instead of going and scattering, let's gather together and make a name for ourselves. Create a reputation for ourselves. Rather than... Going and displaying his glory that he might become famous. Let's make ourselves famous and let's keep ourselves together. It's a false security. People do it all the time. Look for unity but outside of God. Come on, we gather, save to your numbers and we'll, we'll make the thing work. And who knows, people might even get to hear about us and we can feel pretty good about us. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's wrong. Listen to what happens. Verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man have built. The Lord said, behold, they're one people. They have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. See, the reality is this, is that the Lord will not tolerate international unity that does not center on him, that does not acknowledge him, that does not glorify him, because at its heart it's blasphemous. It's not looking good. Then we get to Genesis 12, and it starts looking good. Verse 1. So they're scattered, speaking different languages, under God's judgment. Now the Lord said to Abraham, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, there it is again, shall be blessed. So we get it with Adam and Eve, they fall. We get it with Noah, Noah's descendants sin, the Babel thing. God brings judgment. Now God chooses Abraham. Okay? He says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, every nation of the world will be blessed. It's international. It's global. There we see it. It's interesting that we find a weak man. The guys who established Babel as it were led by a man called Nimrod, who was a mighty warrior. Not so Abraham. He's an idolater. He, um, he's a man who I guess would carry some shame in the sense that he's not got any offspring. And in those days it was a shameful thing. His wife was unable to bear children. And really he didn't look like he was up to much. And God says, well, we'll have him. I like that. <laughs> God does that. He says, I'll have that one. They're not up to much. And then when they bear amazing fruit, they'll recognize it was me that did this. They won't fall into that sin of self-sufficiency and pride because they'll know, they'll remember that outside of me, they're really not up to much. So he says, I'll add that one. So he calls Abraham and takes him on this amazing journey, really, this life of traveling, this nomadic life, this life filled with challenges, filled with immense faith challenges. And God says, this is how I want it. I want you out on a limb. I want you trusting me. I'm making you promises and I want you to just trust me for them. I promise you offspring. But my wife's 75. He's thinking, yeah, this better come soon. 25 years later, no sign of the baby. You know, it's, this is tough. It's challenging. Why? Why is it like this? Because God is saying, I want to keep you in that place where you are leaning on me, where you are trusting me. Because I've got a plan for you and the plan is, is that through you, the whole earth is blessed. And so I'm going to do all I can to keep you from self-sufficiency, from a sense of being raised up in yourself, from exalting yourself, so that I can continue to bless you. That's the heart of God. That's how it works. And it happens. He becomes the father of Isaac, who becomes the father of Jacob, who becomes the father of the 12 uh, men who become the tribes of Israel. So we get the nation of Israel. Called to be a blessing to the nations. So what happens first of all in their early days, they go to Egypt where there's a famine on, and then they become slaves over time under the powers of Egypt. Then God raises up Moses. He delivers them from Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness of 40 years, and then into the promised land, and it should be celebration time. Okay, Israel, it's been promised to you. You're the offspring of Abraham. You're going to be a light to the nations. All the nations of the earth, Israel, are going to be blessed through you. As you live out your relationship with the Lord, uh, who is unique, the only God, as you live by the, the rules and the commands he's given you, which are beautiful, which just care for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, keep, keep there from being oppression in the society, the law is beautiful. There's nothing like it. Surrounded by nations that are into child sacrifice and all kinds of disgusting immorality and idolatry, you're going to live in this promised land and you're going to shine out beautifully and the other nations will look on and say, how do you live like that? And they'll say, it's the Lord. And they will come to the Lord and the whole earth will be blessed. But it doesn't happen. Instead of being influencers, they become influenced. I'll say that again because that's a key sentence. Instead of becoming influencers, they become influenced. Pause for a second. This happens a lot when Christians move to cities. Seen it. Not ready for it. I've seen it in numbers of different situations and different ways. 
I've seen people that move into the city of London, particularly because that's, that's where I'm based, obviously, that's where I've seen it. But they might have moved in from 25 miles or 50 miles away. And they think, well, it's the same country. It's going to be pretty much the same thing. And it isn't. In fact, sociologists, a lot of them say this, that cities like London and New York and other major cities have more in common with one another culturally than they do with their surrounding nation that they're placed in. It's a different ballgame. And people come in, and a lot of what we have to pass the people through is culture shock. English people. Because they say, oh, just the pace, the attitude. I feel like I'm in a whirlwind even when I'm not busy. You know, this whole thing, it's, it's just the aggression. And you can end up, you, you, you get sucked into the thing rather than changing the thing. And you begin looking like what it is rather than maintaining your distinction. You see it particularly when those move in from other nations that are much more conservative and much more Christianized. I've spoken to numbers of, I remember speaking to a guy from West Africa, highly Christianized nation, comes to London, expecting England, London, it'll kind of be the same. Just someone's got the rug and they've gone, because the things his eyes are suddenly exposed to takes him totally off guard and falls away completely from the law. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Of course. So Israel mess it up. They fail. Into Jesus. Good news starts. The Bible calls him the second Adam. Because what Adam failed in, this one won. The Bible calls him Abraham's seed. Because even though it looks like Israel have missed it, actually, there's one who's born, who is an Israel, Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, who is the true Israel. So when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, He's saying, I'm the true Israel. It's not just a nice metaphor, because all through the Old Testament you find this picture of Israel as God's vineyard. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. Abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Before the cross, Jesus focuses on reaching out to Israel. He's come as their Messiah, their promised Messiah. That's what he's come for. And God's plan is that he should reach out to Israel and that they should reject him and hand him over to crucifixion. You know the story of the cross? The innocent man, beautifully in control of the whole situation, orchestrates his own betrayal and arrest. But then in the garden, suddenly, I guess, just becomes aware of the sense of the Father, his presence that he'd known all his life, withdrawing, and suddenly the awareness of what it means to be under the wrath of God for sinful people, for us, in our place, begins to dawn on him, and he begins to drink of the cup of God's wrath, and he's he's in a bad way. My soul is deeply troubled to the point of death. Stay with me. Keep watch with me. Suddenly we begin to see Jesus, the one who's always in control, you know, the one who's always the prince of peace, you know, suddenly his soul is deeply troubled, he's in, a, he's, he, he's in trouble, he confesses, he says, I, I just need you with me at the moment, and then his disciples, well, they're supposed to be praying with him, fall asleep, and there he is, sweating blood in the garden, an angel comes and strengthens him, and there's that moment where you think, oh my goodness, is he going to fail as well? You can imagine the temptations. And then he prays that beautiful prayer, not my will, but yours be done. If there's another way, please, but not my will. Your will be done. And, and he goes to the cross. And he experiences what none of us have. We, we have no idea what he experienced, but what we know is this. That he was utterly derelict and alone, rejected by God, rejected by man, alone, under, under the wrath of God. Not just for the sins of Israel, though for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. For your sin and mine. 
bruised, beaten, forsaken. There he is. And even in that, his beauty just shines out. Forgive them, Father. I don't know what they're doing. Even in that, his beauty shines out. He speaks over to John, who's standing next to his mother, Mary, and says to John, John, behold, it's your mum. To his mum, your son. He's saying, John, take her in. Thinking about his mum while he's there. Beautiful. What a saviour. What a saviour. And the, whole, the wrath of God is aimed into that one man's body for the sins of the whole world. <coughs> and he dies and he's buried and then the women come early in the morning, uh, the Sabbath morning, uh, the morning after the Sabbath to, 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 to with spices to uh, wrap his body properly. He's not there. Death couldn't hold him. Because for death to ever hold him, the only thing death can get its claws into is sin, and although he became sin on the cross, none of it was his. And so death comes and tries to get a hold on him, and there's nothing there. He rises from the dead, hallelujah. He appears to his disciples, and he gives them this amazing commission. Matthew 28, verse 18. It's Genesis 1 all over again. It's Genesis 9 all over again. It's Genesis 12 all over again. Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all, of all nations. There it is. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's this commission, suddenly it's on these 500, headed up by these 12. Oh, it's back on. Yeah, it's back on, all right, we're going for the nations. Yeah, it's back on, we are going for the nations. And this time, it's going to work, why? Because the, the, the second Adam, the seed of Abraham, the true Israel was promised, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Hallelujah, he's promised it. And he's, he's, he's commissioned his disciples. And then we get the day of Pentecost, which is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Okay? You've got to see that. It's not just, oh, that was nice, spoken tongues. It was a reversal of what happened at Babel. Let's read Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were bewildered because they could understand. At Babel, they were bewildered because one, you know, on Tuesday it was like, Hey, how you doing, bro? Yeah, good. It's good to see you. See you later. They wake up the next day, and one speaking French, and the other speaking Spanish. It's like, man, what's going on? I don't understand. At Pentecost, it's completely opposite. It's like, these people, they're, 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 they're acting strange. We don't know what's going on. They seem to be tumbling out of this upper room onto the streets. We've heard a noise, like a huge wind and a hurricane. And what's, They're all speaking this language, and they're all babbling away. But, oh, man, he's speaking where I'm from. And they all say, I don't believe this. I can understand. It's the reversal of God's judgment. It's the reversal. God judged Babel because it was a unity outside of Christ. God here is saying, I'm going to bless this gathering because they're united under him. 
And I'm all about uniting all things under my son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to bless this. I will not judge this. I will bless this. And as they speak by the Spirit, they will be understood. And salvation will come. They was amazed and astonished, saying, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. 3,000 saved on that very day. I think I was trying to say something through this, that kind of this should be a season in history of fruitfulness. Yeah? A season where many, many come to Christ. Not our expectations are down, thinking, oh, maybe, maybe God will save it. No, surely. God, it, it's so funny. I was reading the commentary a few months back, and it made me laugh. It was so ridiculous. Because they were arguing for the cessation of the power of the Spirit in our time. And they said something like this. In the book of Acts, we see extraordinary workings of the Spirit, etc., etc. But in our time now, the gospel would advance by more normal means. I'm thinking, okay, so tell me what these normal means are. And then once you've told me, tell me on what authority they are the normal means. Because I thought this was the authority. And I thought this is what tells us what the normal means are. And when I read through the book of Acts, I find that the normal means are powerful, God-filled preaching. I find that the normal means are the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting people supernaturally of their sin. You haven't got to cajole them and sell the gospel to them, but God breaks in and opens the eyes of their heart. I see miracles of healing and deliverance which open people up wide to the gospel. And for others, are a sign of judgment where even though they see that, they still don't come. But nevertheless, it's God at work. I see, I see people getting rescued from prison by angels. I see all, and I think, where does it say in the book, oh, by the way, come around, yeah, sort of around AD 3 or 400, this stuff's going to stop. It doesn't. It doesn't say it because it's not God's plan. And I want to just say this, I want, I want you guys to be in expectation, not in a kind of a carnal fleshly triumphalism. Listen, we are promised opposition, we are promised persecution, we are promised um, that if they hated Jesus, they'll hate us, okay? We are promised pressure and tribulation. We are promised at times you will feel like you are swimming up the river and everyone's swimming that way. We are promised fruitfulness. In the midst of all of that, we are promised that we will bear much fruit to the Father's glory as we abide in Jesus Christ. And our expectation must be there for that to the nations, to the nations of the world. I believe the Bible assumes that massive gospel spread and kingdom advance will be, will, will be what marks the generation, the, the season, the day of salvation, the Bible calls it, between Christ's ascension and his return. Listen to Revelation 7 verse 9. We're going to end up in Revelation Beautiful book. Revelation 7, verse 9. Last book of the Bible. If you've got to your concordance in the back, you've gone too far. Those, crazy, those Bible concordances are crazy. Have you noticed they never have the word you want? They have every other word but the one you want. They say, New Bible, 12,000 word concordance. Yeah, but not the words I need. Anyway, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. All tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, 
glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Hallelujah. And then we see the conclusion of God's plan for the whole earth in Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to go for the first six verses of 21 and then the first seven verses of 22. This is just so moving. This is how it ends. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. That's the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now where was that? Eden. Here it is. God's original plan is not frustrated, but comes to pass because he is sovereign. There it is. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will no, need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Amen. The word of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. It's God's plan. Every Christian and every congregation catch this in their heart and run with it with all of their might. We've got to see it. Because once you see it and you catch it, you'll find a way of running with it. Don't worry about how. Those things, we'll, we'll look at those in just a minute. But you've got to catch it in your heart first. I have been called to the nations one way or another. One way or another. There's three just quick implications I want to look at. Firstly, on culture. Just very quickly. To all cultures, there are three elements. Those elements to it which help the gospel. Those elements in it which are neutral. And those elements in it which are unhelpful. And those unhelpful elements in the culture must be challenged by the gospel. Otherwise, the gospel will not properly take root into that culture and you won't see the ripe fruit come. It's very important that we understand this. It's, easier, it's hard to see sometimes the bad things in our own culture because our culture is like glasses. We see through it rather than looking at, at it, if you know what I mean. You just, you're just, your vision is totally shaped by your culture, but you almost don't notice it. But there are certain things in cultures around the world that need challenging. I've got some general things here, just to, just to get you thinking. The gospel needs to challenge North American individualism, materialism, and consumerism. They are idols in North America particularly. If the gospel doesn't challenge those things, it will not properly take root and impact 
that part of the world. The gospel needs to challenge Latin American superstition and legalism. A lot of it rooted in Catholicism. It must challenge those things. Otherwise there will be a superficial impact of the gospel. The gospel must challenge Western European intellectualism, anti-supernaturalism and religiosity. Huge strongholds that need breaking down if the gospel is going to really impact. The gospel comes to challenge Eastern European hopelessness and passivity, often a legacy of communism. It's got to break through those things. Okay? Otherwise, what you find, you often find it a lot, particularly take Eastern Europe, you find that in a lot of, a lot of the churches, they're real passivity. Especially trying to get guys to do anything. Because all initiative was taken out of their hands through communism. And it's got to break through that if you're going to see real impact. Middle Eastern fatalism and political fanaticism rooted in Islam. African occultism and syncretism. Far Eastern Confucianism ancestral worship and superstition. It's got to be broken. Australian hedonism and secularism. I'm just generalising, but these are things that mark these nations and these cultures which need dealing with by the gospel if there's going to be proper advance and hearts and minds are really going to be changed. The gospel must not be a bolt-on to the status quo. Oh, we'll have the gospel and we're just carrying as we are. No. It comes to challenge everything. Our, our, our values our norms and our beliefs. That's what makes up a culture. Your values, the things you value, your norms, the things, well, I normally just do this and the things that you believe. That's what makes up culture. The gospel comes to challenge each of those and put them under its scrutiny. Some things will flourish and some things will be fine. You just carry on, no problem. Other things I will need to be repented of thoroughly and get renewal of the mind so that there's real advance. So culture. Secondly, okay, we want to reach the nations, but how do we do it? <laughs> Leadership. Who's going to? Le- how does this thing work? Leadership. I want to introduce you to a term which I call um, apostolic advance. Okay, it's a term I'll use more and more in the next few years. I'm not going to spend long on it, but just want to introduce you to the concept so you understand what it is um, as we talk more and more about it. What is apostolic advance? Well, it's where mercy ministries like orphan care, medical care, agricultural assistance, care for the poor, education, etc., as well as gospel preaching initiatives like church planting, kids clubs, and outreaches are strategically aligned under the leadership of those whom God has gifted apostolically. Now, not in the sense that apostles, you know, those who wrote the scriptures, the scriptures written, the canon is complete, but the Bible says in Ephesians 4 that God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the upbuilding of the church, for the equipment of the saints, until the church comes to maturity, until the church grows up to the stature of Christ. And so the church isn't there yet. I don't know if you haven't noticed. <laughs> it's a little bit like big head, small body at the moment, okay? There's a lot of growing to do. And so these gifts, these ministries are given to bring the church up so it grows into Christ's stature. Uh, so, so it's no point saying there aren't apostles anymore. Yes, there are. And in fact, the Bible says this, in the church, 1 Corinthians 12, first apostles. There's a firstness about the apostolic gift. So what does it do? Well, it doesn't write scripture or anything like that, okay? What does it do? It's a, it's a master building gift. It's able to lay a good foundation, get a doctrinal plumb line in and make sure something is built well. It breaks into new ground. Right, what's next? Where are we going next? Come on, let's keep going. Gospel advance. It m- multiplies ministry. It spots ministry and gifting and draws it out and raises people up. They're fathers, spiritual fathers. And the other ministries, evangelist, prophet, pastor, teacher, should be under the apostolic, and the apostolic should lead the way in it. 
Not in a dominating, oppressive way, it's relational, it's team, but the gift is recognised, and under that, the thing can really advance. That's God's plan, that's God's um, wineskin, if you like, in Scripture. The result should be this, that all of these different initiatives, orphan care, medical care, agricultural assistance, care for the poor, education, gospel preaching, church planting, kids clubs, outreaches, are unleashed into the four corners of the earth. And it leads to new churches that have in their DNA Holy Spirit power, confidence in Scripture, practical care, gospel confidence, gospel preaching, an understanding of, 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 of how things are supposed to work, and also indigenous leadership. And it has into its DNA as well multiplication, that we're going to plant more, we're going to plant more, and we're going to plant more, and that's how you reach the nations. It's not easy. Okay, don't... It's going to take huge opposition you try and push through on that. <laughs> but that's God's plan. And final thing, what does it mean for Revelation Church? Number one, it means this. Wherever you are from, nation-wise, or wherever your neighbor, neighbors are from, they are on God's radar. All right? Wherever you're from, you're on God's radar. He's after you. Wherever your neighbors are from, I think, oh, they're from there, you know, I don't know how to relate. They're on God's radar. Pray for them. Pray for them. Secondly, if you're a believer, the world is your oyster. Nowhere is closed, nowhere is out of bounds. Hallelujah. Now, practically, there may be seasons where you think, I can't get in there, like the season of the Iron Curtain. I can't get into these nations. You can get everywhere by prayer. In two senses, God can open up doors that no man can shut, so you can actually get there, but also you can reach that nation in prayer. Yeah? You can, you you can reach North Korea in prayer. So Pray. Because God's arm is not too short. His arm is not held back by a political system. Okay? What else? As a local congregation, we must increasingly engage with what it means to be a multicultural church locally. We've got a long way to go on this. Over time, this will involve raising up a multicultural leadership in the church and learning how to give appropriate expression and voice to the different cultures that make up the church here. If in 10 years' time our church demographic does not represent more and more increasingly the area around us, we're doing something wrong. Okay? There's some work to be done there. And then finally, we must send people well. We must send them well. Like the Rileys going to Gdansk to plant a church in Poland. We want to send them well. Yeah? Matt Med planning to move out to Latvia to plant a church in the summer this year. We want to send him well. Nick and Alexa, off to South Africa for three months in a couple of weeks' time to work with Hands at Work, a charity that work with AIDS orphans and care for people. We want to send them well. Yeah? We want to send and get behind people and, and support them in whatever ways they need. Relationally, Skype phone calls, prayer, um, Christmas cards, whatever. Praying for them. We want to get behind them and send people well. It's ever so important that we do that. This isn't just, oh, that'd be nice and Christian. That'd be nice. No, that's what God's doing. It's what God's doing in the world. Let's get in on it with all of our might. In Titus 3.13, the Apostle Paul says, Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. What great name, Zenos and Apollos. <laughs> Do your best to speed them on their way. See they lack nothing. See they lack nothing. Part of us wanting to give more to the Rileys is, I want to see they lack nothing. They support Matt financially as a church, so he lacks nothing. Yeah? We want to get behind these guys. There's a, there's a cost to it, but let's do so. Oh, no, there's one more thing, finally, sorry. The other one was a preacher's finally. This is a real finally. Okay. We must deal with racism in our own hearts. And don't give me that, I'm not a racist, I'm a Christian, lark, either. 
Okay? It is a constant challenge when you live in a city. Some cultures don't queue, do they? You notice that at bus stops? You got a bus stop in the countryside? Take your place. London? Rah! Free for all. <laughs> that can lead to racism. Some cultures are more outspoken than others, aren't they? Some cultures driving in an interesting manner. <laughs> it can really get under your skin. It can really get under your skin. I've battled with it. And we've got to root it out because it will hold back the advance of the gospel in our hearts and in our church. We've got to declare war on it. Okay? We all must do that. Even if, even, it's not that you become naive and you say, oh no, you know, every culture's fine. No, every culture has really annoying traits about it. All right? Yeah? But you've got to learn to see beyond that and love the person and reach out to them in the power of God. That's it.